Hi there. Welcome to the Cato Forum today on infrastructure. Uh, I'm Chris Edwards, an economist at the Cato Institute. Uh, I've written much over the years on the nation's infrastructure, such as highways and airports. Uh, but most of what I've learned has uh, I've learned from our two panelists today, uh, Bob Poole of the Reason Foundation and Randall O'Toole of the Cato Institute. I'm going to give a brief overview of what's in President Biden's infrastructure plan, and then we're going to hear uh, from Bob and Randall. Uh, you can send us uh, text questions uh, that we will address after our panelists have spoken. There should be a text box uh, on your uh, screen. You can also tweet questions uh, to us with the hashtag CatoEcon. Uh, uh, Infrastructure is a hot issue. The President Biden has proposed a $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan, and Congress is considering various options uh, over the next few weeks and months. Uh, we can break the nation's infrastructure into three different piles. Uh, the first pile is federal infrastructure, uh, such as Amtrak, for example. The second pile is state and local infrastructure, such as highways and schools and transit systems. Uh, the third pile is private infrastructure, everything from broadband to electric utilities to freight railroads. Uh, there is no precise definition of infrastructure, but about 65% of the nation's infrastructure is owned by the private sector. About 30% is owned by state and local governments, and just 5% is owned by the federal government. Uh, President Biden's plan would increase subsidies for all three types of infrastructure, uh, for example, he would increase federal subsidies for Amtrak by $80 billion. He would increase subsidies for state and local infrastructure, uh, such as $115 billion for highways, $100 billion for schools, $66 billion for water systems, and $25 billion more for airports. Uh, Biden is also proposing huge subsidies for private sector infrastructure, which is really unprecedented and not in a good way. Uh, Biden would subsidize manufacturing by $300 billion, electric vehicles by $170 billion, broadband $100 billion, and electric power $100 billion. And like all federal subsidies, this new aid would be tied to top-down federal regulations. As one example, uh, Biden makes clear uh, that he wants labor union regulations tied to all this new federal spending. Uh, the infrastructure debate has many different parts. Uh, politicians often focus on spending, but a more important question is uh, who owns infrastructure, who should fund it, and who would best manage infrastructure, the federal government, state and local governments, or the private sector? Uh, can government infrastructure be moved to the private sector? Uh, how do we tackle congestion on highways and other infrastructure? And why is some infrastructure in such bad shape? such as the subway systems in D.C. and New York City. Uh, to tackle these questions, uh, Bob and Randall will each talk for about 12 minutes, uh, and then I'll wrap up with five to 10 minutes of comments, and then we will go to questions that, again, you can type into the uh, text box on your screen there, or you can, uh, you can send us through uh, Twitter. So first up will be Bob Poole, who's Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Uh, Bob is one of the nation's most prolific writers on transportation over many years. Uh, he's an expert on highways and airports and air traffic control systems. Uh, I'd highly recommend his 2018 book, Think, uh, Rethinking America's Highways. Uh, Bob's got degrees in mechanical engineering, uh, but to his credit, he thinks like an economist on infrastructure issues. 
uh, which is a good thing. Uh, Randall O'Toole uh, is a Cato Senior uh, Fellow specializing in transportation, uh, land use, and environmental issues. Uh, he's written six books, uh, most recently, uh, Romance of the Rails, why the, pass why the Passenger Trains We Love Are Not the Transportation uh, We Need. Uh, Randall loves railroads, but he finds uh, compelling evidence that government, government subsidies for uh, rail, whether it's Amtrak uh, or subways or light rail, uh, is really very unproductive and, and not efficient. Uh, so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Bob Poole to take it away. There we go. Uh, thanks very much. I'm uh, sorry for the delay in getting started. Um, I think the overall philosophy that, that underlies the Biden plan is 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 troubling from a trans on the transportation part of it. It ignores the user pay users benefit principle, which is the foundation of uh, uh, what we call the user taxes that originated with Oregon in 1919 and are a very wise principle. It ignores the role of potential private capital to leverage whatever money federal government uh, would invest and state governments for that matter. And it also ignores sound principles of federalism uh, in terms of which level of government should do which function. Uh, on highways, the 115 billion over eight years sounds like a lot, but uh, the way it uh, appears to be divided up is, uh, is kind of disappointing. Uh, it ignores the need to spend uh, an estimate of a trillion dollars over 20 years to rebuild the interstate highway system. And there's no mention of the interstates, uh, which is the most important infrastructure on, in surface transportation. And a hugely disproportionate increase in transit funding compared to, to roads and bridges, uh, even though uh, transit, as Randall will tell you, uh, handles a tiny fraction of the passenger miles of travel in the country. So the 115 billion, uh, first of all, 50 billion is, is supposed to be for 20,000 miles, including local streets and, and state highways to, to bring them to better repair. That sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually not going to go very far in terms of, of the, particularly if, if you look at the, the cost of, of reconstructing and modernizing the interstates. 40 billion is for uh, 10,000 out of about 45,000 uh, structurally deficient bridges in the United States. That's also not going to go very far. There's no mention at all of uh, benefit cost assessment of making sure that whatever money does get spent is on projects that will be worth uh, where the benefits are, are greater than the cost. Uh, the 20 billion for road safety raises a big question mark. Uh, this could be largely to fund things like the so-called complete streets projects that take away lanes and lower speed limits in order to uh, uh, make more space for pedestrians and bicyclists and less space for, uh, for cars. And the Reconnecting Neighborhoods program, I very much fear this could mean tearing down urban interstates that uh, were originally not imposed by the federal government or by the state DOTs, but by big city mayors that insisted that they, they wanted this federal money right inside uh, their city limits, not limited to uh, interstates between, uh, between states. Urban Transit, Randall will speak much more. We weren't sure he was going to be able to get online for this, but uh, uh, $55 billion is for the deferred maintenance, which if they're going to spend money, that's probably the least bad place to spend it. But $25 billion is for transit expansion, and uh, this contradicts the fix-it-first philosophy of, of the whole proposal and the very uncertain demand for transit following uh, the recovery from the COVID. Uh, and, and it also 
basically assumes without evidence that transit will have a lar lower carb carbon footprint in the next few decades than personal vehicles. Airports uh, expose a, a, a $25 billion expansion of the existing AIP airport improvement program, which historically has only been available to spend on airside projects. For the first time, it would some of it could be used to expand terminals, which would be potentially good for, for competition. But it ignores altogether the, the self-help uh, passenger facility charge, which is a local charge Congress allows airports to levy, which can be bonded against to finance terminal expansions. Uh, but the cap on it has not been changed since I think 1990. And uh, almost all the money that's, that's there is already committed to existing long-term bonds. So there's a big need for more of that. And that is apparently not mentioned. Rural broadband, Chris asked me, it's not transportation, but asked me to comment briefly on, on this one. A hundred billion dollars for high-speed broadband, mainly for rural areas. Now this ignores that the FCC has a large program that uh, is moving, been moving forward for years with competitive auctions open to all broadband technologies, whereas the Biden plan would fund only local agencies and co-ops and apparently is limited to fiber optics, which is a very costly way to do low density uh, rural areas. So my suggestion of alternative principles would be to, first of all, reinforce rather than destroy the users pay, users benefit principle, which is very sound. And there's all kinds of academic literature as well as practical experience that's showing this, this gets the incentives right to make sure that the users uh, who are paying the, the, the fees are the ones ultimately who benefit. Uh, a second principle would be to tap into the hundreds of billions of dollars of private capital that is sitting in public pension funds and infrastructure investment funds looking for good opportunities to invest in revenue generating uh, long-term infrastructure, including transportation. And finally, if there's gonna be federal funding, uh, uh, it should focus on major projects with multi-state impacts, not on local functions that are proper responsibilities of, of state and local governments. So in my view on highways. So I, the major focus should be rebuilding the most important of, of the uh, highways, the interstate highway system. Uh, the TRB study that I, that I mentioned uh, estimated this would cost a trillion dollars over the next 20 years. Uh, this, in almost all states, this could be financed uh, uh, with toll revenues, but toll revenues are currently illegal uh, for the 95% of the interstates that weren't developed originally with tolls. Uh, but these projects, if, if that tolling were allowed, would be a good fit for long-term public-private partnership, P3 projects that pension funds and infrastructure funds would love to invest in. And it would be lower risk than brand new highways because these are existing highways with known traffic histories. Another point is that if we're going to get uh, uh, tolling, the federal ban on, on tolling needs to be uh, rethought. And there's an existing three-state pilot program that uh, should be offered to all states to rebuild all of their interstates using toll finance if they choose to do so, but requiring them to use customer-friendly tolling policies so that they do not turn this into a general uh, cash cow for the state government. And uh, the private activity bonds that allow uh, P3s to compete on a level cost of, of, of bonds with uh, public agencies uh, has all been used up the 15 billions Congress authorized needs to be at least doubles. It probably would be prior to, better to remove the cap altogether. 
And if this kind of program started using toll, uh, self-help toll finance by the states, it would gradually reduce demands on the highway trust fund uh, as states take that burden, uh, at least some of it, away from the feds. A short-term fix that I proposed to the EPW committee in testimony uh, a week or two ago would be to dedicate all the highway user tax revenues to highway spending, which was the original uh, promise of the highway trust. That's why it's called the Highway Trust Fund. Fund transit and non-highway programs, however much Congress wants to, from the general fund, where that has to compete with other general fund programs. And I believe that highway users would be more likely to support modest increase in highway user taxes if the, they became user pure user taxes again. And uh, the money that's coming in from highway users is almost about the amount that's be actually spent by the feds on highways. It's all the other stuff that is causing the, the fund to be in such uh, dire straits. Finally, uh, uh, the federal government has a role to play in continuing to support the research and pilot projects to we're eventually going to re have to replace per gallon fuel taxes with per mile charges. So we need more multi-state, regional, and truck pilot projects to on these mileage-based user fees. They're called road user charges in the West. And federal research on the institutions that will be needed to collect and enforce uh, federal and state uh, uh, mileage fees, such as state DMVs and the International Fuel Tax Agreement that already exists to divvy up truck fuel taxes among states, regardless of where they buy the fuel. For airports, the, at the cap on airport PFCs, which I said is basically almost all, all being used already for existing bonds, should be doubled at least and indexed to inflation. Uh, private activity bonds should be expanded to airports, including for renovation of existing uh, facilities and long-term leases. And not infrastructure per se, but airports should be allowed to select their own certified screening companies uh, with TSA uh, not being the heavy hand that, that imposes a company on an airport that wants to have this. And if we're dreaming uh, dreams of reform, uh, the airport slot system, which is political and arbitrary and protects incumbents, should be replaced with runway pricing of landings and takeoffs. And so that's what I would propose if I were asked. Urban transit, uh, Randall will have more to say, but uh, there should no longer be, at least for the next five years, capital grants to expand rail systems, uh, given the focus of the need for fixing it first. And if there's going to be operating support uh, from the federal government, it should be only to subsidize the fare of low-income riders. And uh, reasonable fees to recover operating costs should be uh, levied on affluent riders, who are increasingly the ones who ride rail transit. Finally, on broadband, don't subsidize fiber for low-density rural areas uh, and rely on the FCC's program, which includes satellite broadband providers, which will probably turn out to be the most cost-effective way to reach uh, low rural, rural people in low-density areas. And I look forward to the questions when we get done. I think uh, Randall's having trouble with his, uh, with his uh, internet connection there, uh, uh, interestingly enough. So why don't I... Um... Why don't I uh, give a few more comments and then we'll go back to Randall to see if his uh, internet connection uh, is working uh, better. So uh, thanks thanks for those comments, Bob. Uh, so my, my overall view of the Biden plan is that we, we simply don't need it. Uh, Biden's two main pots of money are for state infrastructure and private infrastructure. 
uh, that first pot of money for state infrastructure is not needed because the states can raise their own uh, taxes and user charges for infrastructure like highways uh, anytime they want. And indeed, half of the states uh, have raised their own gas taxes in just the last five years. So there's really no federal action required there. States can raise their own money. Uh, the second pot of uh, money that Biden is promising is for private infrastructure. So, for example, President Biden wants to spend $174 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles. Uh, but there's really uh, already huge private investment in electric vehicles. Uh, General Motors announced recently that they will invest $27 billion in electric vehicles just over the next five years. Uh, and Biden uh, in uh uh, electric vehicle charging stations are going in across the nation. Biden wants to uh, subsidize charging stations for electric vehicles, uh, but there's already about 40,000 electric vehicle charging stations in the nation. Uh, you may have noticed at your local Target or Walmart, uh, they've got whole lines of uh, EV charging stations these, these days. So, you know, the private sector is doing it here. We don't need more uh, subsidies for EVs. Uh, the political irony here is that leading Democrats, including Biden, uh, often land-based corporate subsidies. But Biden's own infrastructure plan is really uh, a huge and uh, massive handouts of corporate subsidies, which are, are unneeded. Uh, the other contradiction uh, in Biden's plan uh, is that while he would be handing out these corporate subsidies, uh, he would he would fund uh, the corporate subsidies with a two trillion dollar corporate tax increase. Uh, Biden says his, uh, his plan will make America more competitive and able to compete with China, but his big corporate tax increase uh, would do the opposite. Uh, the Tax Foundation, a think tank in Washington, uh, found that uh, Biden's corporate tax increase would reduce in, uh, private investment by a trillion dollars. That means less private investment in infrastructure, such as uh, broadband and electric utilities. And that's the opposite of what President Biden says he wants. So consider broadband, um, which uh, Bob talked about. Uh, companies such as AT&T are already investing 50 billion or more a year in broadband. So the internet is getting better all the time, and that's a good thing. Uh, but President Biden's corporate tax hike uh, will reduce investment in, in broadband companies. So, for example, so Biden, in that way, Biden's plan would make us less competitive uh, with other countries, and that's the opposite uh, of what President Biden uh, wants to do. Uh, another contradiction of Biden's plan uh, is that it is billed as a green plan, a way to tackle climate change. Uh, but the green way to fund infrastructure such as highways and water systems is by user charges, because user charges limit uh, consumer demand. Uh, if local water systems need upgrades, for example, uh, water authorities should increase user charges to raise the money uh, for that investment, and that would have the benefit of limiting uh, water usage. Uh, but Biden's plan would use subsidies uh, and not user charges. Uh, so Biden's uh, infrastructure funding plan uh, is not green uh, at all. So what's my alternative to the, uh, the Biden plan? Uh, how do we ensure that we have uh, efficient investment and good management of infrastructure? Well, the answer I think is decentralization. Uh, where we can, we should move infrastructure uh, to the private sector, where it can be funded by user charges, as Bob was talking about. Uh, a good example uh, is airports. Uh, all of America's major airports are owned by state and local governments, but there's really no reason for that. About half of Europe's major airports are owned 
uh, by the private sector, and they're generally self-funded uh, by user charges and retail concessions and advertising and other commercial revenues. Uh, Biden's plan would increase airport subsidies. Uh, Biden's plan says, quote, according to some rankings, no U.S. airports rank in the top 25 of airports worldwide, unquote. Uh, but that's because all U.S. airports are owned by governments, uh, whereas many abroad have been privatized, such as London's Heathrow. So there's no need to subsidize airports from, from the federal level. Uh, the same is true, by the way, of seaports. Uh, seaports should be self-funded by user charges. Uh, currently, many U.S. seaports need upgrades to handle larger container ships, uh, and they lobby Washington uh, for money, and they often wait years to get it, which delays uh, needed seaport improvements. Uh, but that makes no sense because seaports can raise their own money from user charges to fund their own expansion. Uh, they don't need to wait for Washington for subsidies. Uh, other countries have privatized their airports and their postal systems, their passenger rail systems, their air traffic control systems. Uh, Hong Kong privatized its subway system. Uh, the Canadians privatized their air traffic control system. Uh, these reforms have worked. So my recommendation is that Congress should study these foreign reforms and adopt the best practices here uh, in the United States. Uh, to touch on something Bob said, the federal government uh, imposes limits on the states being able to fund their own infrastructure. Uh, Bob mentioned with airports, the federal government puts a limit on how much states can raise from passenger uh, charges to fund their own uh, airports. Uh, that makes no sense. Uh, similarly with highways, uh, which are owned by state governments, including the entire interstate system. Uh, the federal government limits the electronic tolling uh, of interstate highways. Uh, that makes no sense. Uh, those limits should be repealed so that states can fully fund uh, their own infrastructure. So in sum, I would say that you know Biden's infrastructure plan is a bad solution looking for a problem. Uh, the private sector is already investing billions of dollars in infrastructure favored by Biden, such as electric vehicles and broadband. Uh, many states have raised their own gas taxes and vehicle fees uh, in recent years to fund their own highways, and, and that's fine. That makes more sense than, than federal funding. So the nation does not need uh, a new spending package from Washington on infrastructure, uh, especially when it's coupled with an infrastructure-killing corporate tax increase. Uh, so those are my comments, and now we're going to see if we can go back to uh, Randall to see if his uh, internet connection uh, is working uh, a little better. Are you, are you there, Randall? I'm here. Uh, I hope it's working a little better. Better. Let's better. let's see if I can resume the show. Uh, I wanted to point out that the average American traveled about 16,000 miles by automobile in 2019, 2,300 miles by air, 164 miles by transit, and 19 miles by Amtrak. Transit and Amtrak together were less than 1% of all passenger travel and 0% of freight. And yet the Biden um, plan would put more than half of, of the transportation dollars into transit and Amtrak. That's a plan based on fantasy. The Republican plan that was issued last week is a little better, but still puts way too much money for transit and probably too much money for Amtrak. Now, people say we haven't been spending enough money on transit and Amtrak. But the reality is, since 1970, we've spent well over $1.6 trillion in today's money on transit. And transit ridership has dropped from about 50 trips per urban resident per year in, in 1970 to about 37 
in 2019. Amtrak, we put nearly $100 billion into, and Amtrak ridership has been at best stagnant uh, and if, if not declining. The pandemic has made these uh, uh, trends worse. Uh, Amtrak and transit are running at about 25 to 30% of uh, historic ridership, whereas driving is at about 90%. And I don't think anybody expects Amtrak and transit to fully recover after the pandemic to their 2019 levels. Now the subsidies we've given to Amtrak and transit have not just been, uh, have not been inadequate. In fact, I would argue that there are too much subsidies. The subsidies have shielded Amtrak and transit from the need to be efficient. They can rely on subsidies to pay for half of Amtrak costs and almost 80% of transit costs. So they don't need to be efficient and so they waste a lot of money. Uh, subsidies shield them from the need to be innovative. When new innovators like uh, Uber and Lyft come along, their solution is to tax the innovators and use the money for transit. And in fact, innovation in the transit industry basically comes out down to figuring out who we can tax uh, in addition to who we're already taxing. Subsidies aren't helping low-income people. Less than 5% of low-income people rely on transit to get to work. The most common uh, income class riding transit is people who earn over $75,000 a year. And yet the subsidies to transit are mostly out of regressive taxes. And so low-income people are disproportionately paying high taxes to su subsidize rides taken disproportionately by high-income people. Uh, the reason why low-income people aren't riding transit is because transit doesn't give people access to jobs. Studies by the University of Minnesota have found that uh, in the largest urban areas, you can reach more jobs in 20 minutes by car than you can reach by transit in 60 minutes. And in fact, you can reach more jobs in trips of 50 minutes or less on a bicycle than you can by urban transit. So transit just is a total failure at getting people to work. Transit is also not energy efficient or uh, environmentally friendly. Since 2009, transit has been less energy efficient than the average car on the road. Since 2017, it's been less energy efficient than the average light truck on the road. Amtrak responded to President Biden's proposal by uh, publishing this map that lists all the new lines that it wants to run trains to, including trains to Cheyenne, Wyoming, Duluth, Minnesota, Rockland, Maine, uh, and other small towns. Now these are very nice towns to live in perhaps, but they aren't, uh, they don't have the population needed to support a passenger train. And so this is gonna be completely wasted. One of the cities on the map is Las Vegas, the fourth, fourth largest tourist destination in the country. They want to run a train from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, but Amtrak will be facing enormous competition. Right now, there are about 45 buses a day between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. They take about a little over five hours and the fares start at $20. Uh, airlines run more than 50 flights a day. And this is during the pandemic. It was even more before the pandemic. They take a little over an hour. And again, fares start at $20. Amtrak, when they last ran trains to Las Vegas, there was one train a day. It took almost seven hours. 
And currently the fare from Oakland to Reno is $43. Los Angeles to Las Vegas is 100 miles more, so the fare is probably going to be larger. It comes down to on trips of less than 200 miles, Amtrak simply cannot compete against the economy and flexibility of buses. On trips of more than 200 miles, Amtrak simply cannot compete against the economy and, uh, and speed of planes. Amtrak does go through some nice territory, but the seats are uncomfortable. Uh, the sleeping accommodations are cramped and overpriced. The food is lousy. And the reason why Amtrak can get away with this is because Amtrak's real constituents are not its riders. They're the people who uh, vote to give Amtrak subsidies. And so Amtrak runs trains in 46 states in order to get political support from politicians in all of those states. Its proposal under the Biden plan would expand that to at least one more state. As Bob said, we really need to return to a user fee system, funding transit out of, use, of, of fares, funding Amtrak out of ticket revenues. And for highways, I really like mileage-based user fees. Oregon has a mileage-based user fee program, and I'm a participant in that program. If anybody has any questions about that program, I'd be glad to talk with them uh, uh, after the show, or if you have questions, we can maybe handle them during the show. The real advantages of user fees are that it makes transportation providers uh, responsive to the users and not to politicians. It also makes sure that transportation facilities are in good condition. For example, only about 2% of bridges that are funded by tolls are in poor condition. About 5% of bridges that are funded by gas taxes are in poor condition. Almost 12% of bridges that are funded out of general funds are in poor condition. Uh, funding out of user fees will also keep transportation agencies from planning trains or bridges to nowhere. And it's socially just because you pay for what you use you don't pay for what somebody else uses. So for all these reasons, we need to return to user fees. The problem with both the Biden and the uh, Republican plan is that they don't say where the money is going to come from. It should come from user fees, and then we'll solve a lot of our transportation and infrastructure problems. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Randall. Um, we've had some questions coming in, so I'm going to uh, take a few of those uh, questions. Uh, a few myself, and then we'll we'll hand some to uh, Randall and Bob. Uh, one question coming in uh, asked about uh, the issue of uh, do state governments delay projects waiting for federal money? Uh, I I indicated that uh, uh, th there is a pattern of uh, seaports uh, delaying projects while they wait for federal money, which I think is really inefficient. I've just noticed uh, in news stories over the years that uh, seaports such as in uh, Charleston, they need to expand. They need to dredge the seaport to be ready for the bigger uh, sh uh, the bigger container ships coming in now. And rather than just going ahead and raising their own charges and expanding their own uh, facilities, they get their members of Congress and senators uh, to lobby Congress for expansion. And sometimes this can literally uh, take many uh, years. So I, I just think it's really inefficient relying on the political process in Washington to fund infrastructure when state and local governments uh, can, you know, have the have the ability to uh, raise money themselves for their own infrastructure. 
then another question coming in, and I'll hand this over to Bob, is there's a question about, uh, uh, I think we both complained about the fact that the states don't have the full authority uh, to impose uh, electronic tolling on right. their, their interstates, which state governments own. And uh, the question was sort of, what is the origin of that? Why does the federal government have that cap on uh, tolling of the interstates? Well, one of the original plans for the interstate system in the early 50s was a toll system uh, inspired by the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the other emerging uh, uh, turnpikes and, and throughways, New York Thruway and so forth. But it turned out at the time there were two problems. One, much of the South did not have the population that would make uh, enough traffic to support toll revenues. Uh, and that was true of some of the Mountain West also. And second problem was there was a very powerful senator, uh, I think from West Virginia, who was adamantly opposed to tolls. And he had a lot of, of clout in terms of, of the system, of the politics. Of the, so early interstate plans were voted down in Congress. When they finally came up with the idea of dedicated gasoline taxes in a highway trust fund with the ability to uh, send out somewhat more money to the states uh, where the costs of, of building were higher and so forth. That proved to be the uh, the secret sauce that got the deal done. Plus the promise of the last minute in the last uh, six months, basically re recruiting urban mayors uh, to who the, got the prospect of, oh my gosh, we can get all this highway uh, capacity at 5%, we only have to come up with 5% and the feds will pay 95%, cut us in. And so that switched a lot of urban uh, uh, senators and, and representatives to support the uh, uh, the gas tax uh, program. And, they, and so they, the provision was that if you build an interstate using the 95% federal funding, you shall not put tolls on it ever. And that's still the law today, apart from a few exceptions Congress has carved out in the last uh, 20 years. Okay, thanks, Bob. And uh, maybe the next question will go to Randall. One of the incoming questions, uh, I think Bob mentioned that you know he would favor removing transit from the Highway Trust Fund. Currently, the Highway Trust Fund, that, that the money mainly comes from gasoline taxes. It's split between highways and mass transit systems uh, in cities. Uh, and Randall, uh, the, the question is, so if, if you remove uh, transit funding from the Highway Trust Fund, wouldn't that be contrary to climate change goals? Goals, because transit doesn't uh, save uh, greenhouse gases. Transit in 2019 emitted almost exactly the same amount of greenhouse gases per passenger mile uh, as automobiles. And in fact, about 40% of transit ridership is in New York City. And since their electric power transit gets its power from nuclear power and other uh, non-fossil fuel sources, in New York City, transit does save uh, greenhouse gases, but in almost every other city, uh, transit emits far more greenhouse gases than driving a car or even an SUV. Uh, in fact, you could be driving around in a uh, Chevy Suburban all by yourself and emitting fewer greenhouse gases per mile than transit emits in, in most cities in the country. So uh, the idea that transit is good for uh, climate change is just an idea that's perpetrated by the industry, but it turns out it's not true. Thanks, uh, thanks, Randall. Uh, now a question for uh, Bob. Uh, Bob, you uh, raised uh, the issue of the uh, in broadband funding, the difference between 
uh, Biden's proposed uh, broadband funding for rural areas and the current uh, the current funding uh, provided by the FCC. Can you go into a little more detail in describing uh, the current uh, the current FCC funding for broadband and why we don't need the new uh, Biden funding? Right. Well, the FCC program. I'm not an expert on the details, but I know they uh, hold periodic uh, competitive auctions and. Uh, it's based on the lowest cost uh, to provide uh, the service. And so uh, in one of the recent auctions, uh, SpaceX, uh, which is launching its uh, Starlink uh, constellation, global satellite coverage to bring uh, high, uh, high speed internet to rural areas, including in underdeveloped countries. And uh, they won a big chunk of the last auction. And that strikes me as probably being the most cost effective way rather than trying to lay fiber where there's maybe uh, one house per square mile in rural areas, uh, that is a recipe for spending tons of money uh, uh, and having not very much bang for the buck. Whereas I think the space-based satellite uh, broadband is going to be the wave of the future. And if they can even, if they can afford to uh, uh, charge people in developing countries uh, where there's no uh, uh, you know, even landlines uh, or, or fiber, uh, and it's worth their while to pay for uh, for broadband service. There, certainly rural Americans will be able to afford uh, the satellite-based broadband uh, uh, as it comes online. And it's in beta testing now. Uh, there's several thousand people in uh, in rural areas in the United States, and it's getting rave reviews in the in the tech uh, press uh, for for. High, uh, you know, very high uh, uh, download capability, uh, fast uh, getting movies, game playing, and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it does cost, uh, uh, I think, something like four hundred dollars for the for the uh, receiving antenna. But the monthly cost is competitive with with fiber, with what is being charged for fiber where they have it. And so I think this is going to be a winner. Well, th thanks, Bob. Actually, one question I want to uh, to, to get in here, uh, Bob, uh, coming from your comments is you raised the issue of public-private partnerships, which you can yes. sort of think of as uh, partial privatization. The idea mm -hmm. uh, is to move some of the risks and the financing with user charges from the government to the private sector. And public-private partnerships have been used for uh, highway projects such as the uh, belt, Beltway widening uh, yes. in Northern Virginia a decade ago. And, you know, my impression is these projects have projects have worked very well. Um, now, I, I, what is your understanding on Capitol Hill, whether there is broad bipartisan support for expanding public-private partnerships? Uh, do, you know, there's a lot in the Biden bill that that I, I don't think, you know, any of us like, but is there a chance to get some some better uh, well, legislation for public-private yeah. partnerships? Is, there is a provision for expanding the uh, private activity bonds, which have been critically important to uh, all of the uh, uh, highway projects that have been financed uh, for P3s. There are 17 uh, uh, highway projects, mostly the express toll lanes, like in Northern Virginia, that have been financed uh, mostly with the private activity bonds, which are tax-exempt revenue bonds. Uh, and, and that is a, that's proven to be a very uh, well well used program, but it's all the federal government only allocated 15 billion that, that would be allowed under the tax code, and that's all all spoken for. It's, it, most of them have been issued; the others have been allocated to projects that haven't quite done the financing yet. So we need, uh, I believe, uh, actually, uh, uh, there's bipartisan bill in Congress uh, to double the 15 billion dollar cap to 30. That's a start. I would. I, there's no federal cap on the amount of taxes at muni bonds uh, that governments can issue. 
So I would say we've proven that there's a need and the value for these uh, for the for P3s, public-private partnerships. Uh, why do we need a federal cap at all? Just let's, let's just let whatever the market is willing to support, uh, based on you know the bond rating agencies have a lot of oversight over this, and uh, the majority of these projects have investment-grade bond ratings. By the way. Um, I'll take a quick one here. Someone asked how much of the Biden proposals require union efforts uh, or union wages. Uh, the answer to that is all of it. If you go back and read uh, Biden's uh, proposals from the campaign and his current um, uh, infrastructure proposal, which is on the White House website, uh, paragraph after paragraph, he, he says, you know, funding for, for private stuff like broadband or state stuff like highways or or federal stuff. Uh, he wants labor union jobs tied to all of the all of the federal dollars uh, he sends out. In particular, uh, he wants so-called project labor agreements tied to every project that gets any kind of uh, federal money. Now, uh, project labor agreements are these agreements where essentially they impose collective bargaining uh, for the project, whether it's a highway expansion or a transit project. Uh, and companies would need to pay uh, union wages and benefits and also the, these project labor agreements would impose union work rules on all these uh, projects. Uh, I'm against this. I think that raises the cost of infrastructure so that the taxpayers sort of get less bang for their buck from these infrastructure projects. And, you know, remember that only 6% of, of workers in, in the U.S. private sector are in labor unions. So, you know, Biden's proposal would be very exclusionary. It would exclude most construction workers in the country because they're not members of, of labor unions, which I think is unfair. Um, Chris, can I just add a comment sure. on this? Uh, in the growing literature, uh, including projects by the New York Times and by various universities, looking at why is U.S. infrastructure construction so awfully expensive and out of scale with Europe, Japan, and other developed nations? And part of it is is cumbersome work rules that are exemplified in the rebuilding of the New York or extending New York subways at uh, three times the cost per mile of subways in Paris or Tokyo. So. Right. So let's, uh, there's a question came in uh, that's in Randall's uh, wheelhouse. The question regards um, vehicle miles traveled um, charges. So, you know, that right now, most money for uh, highways at both the federal and state level are raised by gasoline taxes. But, you know, if we continue going in the direction of electric vehicles, obviously uh, gas tax revenues will fall in the, in the future. Um, there's a lot of advocates for switching to a system of vehicle miles tax. Uh, including, I think, Bob and Bob and Randall. So why don't you address that question, Randall? Uh, can you give us uh, a little more detail on how some of the pilot projects like in Oregon uh, work with these VMT charges? Well, one of the reasons I like vehicle mile fees is because potentially uh, all owners of roads can piggyback on the fee system and, and use it to fund their own roads. Currently, State highways are funded out of gas taxes and vehicle registration fees, but city and county roads are mostly funded out of general funds. And oftentimes cities and counties end up having to neglect the, their systems. And so they end up having the poor infrastructure because they're too busy building streetcars or other frivolous things than they are uh, maintaining the, the infrastructure they've got. So vehicle mile fees can fix that. Oregon's vehicle mile fee system uh, gives people a choice. You can 
just report your odometer readings to the state and then pay for that. The problem with that is then you don't know whether people are driving on city, county, or state, or federal, or private roads, and so there's no piggybacking options. The system I prefer and that I have is uh, I put a GPS device in my car, and it reports to a private company where I'm driving and when I'm driving. And the private company collects a fee from me and passes that money on to the state. The private company promises that they will not tell the state where or when I'm driving, but they will tell the state how much I owe the state or how much everybody owes the state who, who drives uh, using this service. And so the state just gets a lump sum of money and they don't know who it's coming from or where it's coming from or where they're driving. Potentially this will allow cities and counties to piggyback onto it. Private road owners can piggyback onto it. And it can even be used uh, with variable prices in order to relieve congestion. Uh, I really like this system. It, I've been using it now for four or five years, maybe six years, a long time, and it doesn't cost very much. Uh, and uh, I find it both convenient and, and uh, I, I no longer pay gas taxes. So it works for me. One of the uh, incoming questions uh, is, uh, Mr. Poole, I believe your suggestions for expanding user fees uh, are sound. What has prevented expansion in this direction under both Democrat and Republican uh, regimes? I would, I, I, I'd note on that issue, there's a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently that uh, said that the Biden administration is absolutely against uh, using user charges for infrastructure because of redistribution concerns. They're, they're concerned that um, user charges uh, impact folks at the bottom, uh, and they'd rather the burden of funding uh, on, on people at the, at the top of the income scales. Uh, I think this is a fundamental contradiction and problem within the Democratic Party. Uh, there is a, the Democratic Party uh, is for green solutions. They, they are for uh, climate change solutions. Uh, part of the climate change solution is moving to a system of more user charges. And um, so it seems to me the Democratic Party has these two, these, these, these two different ideas that are really at loggerheads with each other. Um, and what do you think about that, Bob? Well, I, th I think you're right on that score, but I would uh, hasten to add that the, uh, the opposition to, uh, in Congress uh, to uh, pay as you go and, and uh, uh, users pay, users benefit is bipartisan. Uh, you you have seen lockstep support that gasoline tax, federal gasoline tax, has become in many voters' minds across the country just another tax because it no longer has the characteristics of the user fee. Um, you know, it's it's every time Congress meets, they they decide to spend more of the highway trust fund uh, on uh, on non-highway purposes, and whereas as you mentioned, Chris. Um, since the last time the federal fuel taxes were increased was 1993, just about every state has increased its gas tax at least once, and some have done it twice, because they have people trust what they're going to get. They are, the increases are sold to people. Here's all the things we're going to do if this passes, Here, and we can't do them with the current revenue. And uh, two-thirds or more of those referendums pass uh, the voters. And so there's a huge difference in trust between uh, the Congress uh, of, of the public, between Congress versus state and local governments. And I think that's the underlying reason. 
why at the federal level, user pays just seems to be dying. I wanted to ask Bob a question uh, to you about uh, airports and air traffic control. The uh, I do find it fascinating that uh, you know half of uh, major European cities now have privatized their uh, airports. Uh, you know, most airports in Britain, for example, uh, are private. If you fly into London's Heathrow, that's a publicly traded corporation. Um, and and yet all America's three or four hundred you know major airports are all government owned, which uh, you know this is remarkable. Remarkable, it seems to me, for a country that. Um, yes. you know, believes itself as sort of a, you know, a, a, a great, uh, 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 you know, economy of entrepreneurs. And yet we, we exclude entrepreneurs uh, from the airport business. And you've also, Bob, written a lot about air traffic control. And I think it's fascinating that both Britain and Canada have moved their air traffic control uh, to a private structure in Canada. It's a nonprofit corporation. Uh, but we just don't seem to be able to go there. There's a lot of resistance. And why is that? Are American well, policymakers more socialistic than the policymakers in Europe, Bob? Yeah, it's it's there's a long tradition in in airport funding uh, of of this being uh, need the need to have the airlines sign long term agreements uh, uh, to support the bond issues in less in the fifties and sixties um, meant that the air, airlines got a lot the incumbent airlines got a lot of control of of, of airport finances and don't have not wanted to give it up. Now that's gradually changed as the uh, major carriers that fly overseas now have a lot of experience using privatized airports. And they say, it's not the end of the world. They, they get good service. And in fact, uh, Chris, we have one US airport, San Juan International in Puerto Rico, that was uh, uh, privatized through a long-term public-private partnership, 40 years. This was about uh, 10 years ago, and it has transformed that airport. Uh, the last time I was there was before the privatization happened. Uh, it was like something out of the 1960s, a generic uh, a hamburger thing, a generic newsstand. And that was about it in terms of the services. Uh, but it's now my sister, both my both of my sisters and their husbands have, have been to it on vacation since then. And it's overnight uh, uh, dramatically improved. Uh, the management is is a, a, a consortium of a private airport company that owns a lot of other airports. There's a whole industry out there that has developed uh, of, of private airport management and investment. Uh, Latin America, go to Lima, uh, Santiago, Chile, uh, the major Brazilian airports are all now. Most of these have not done as, as Britain done and, and sell them to shareholders outright. They mostly have long-term 30 to 50 year long-term public-private partnerships. But that gets you 90% of the benefits uh, of, of an investor-owned company. And the companies themselves, uh, have, have, many of them have 30, 40 airports that are, that they are managing around the world and investing in. So it's been a it's been a sea change. I I still have hope. Congress actually liberalized the uh, former airport uh, private uh, pilot program, and it's now available to all airports across the country. And uh, but it still has not really caught fire. And uh, I. Maybe in the recovery from the pandemic, this will become uh, more popular. On the other hand, the Biden plan, if it dumps another $25 billion on airports, uh, will take some of the wind out of the uh, sales of the people trying to sell them on a, on a public-private partnership. Randall, question uh, for you. Uh, you know, you're you're uh, one of the most prominent uh, experts on urban transit. Of course, the pandemic uh, hammered uh, urban transit. People don't want to go on subway systems and 
DC and New York because of you know worries about uh, COVID nineteen. But you know even before the COVID nineteen, as as you've uh, documented often, you know uh, urban mass transit ridership was falling. So what do you think the long term effect of the pandemic will be? Uh, it seems that you know air airline usage will you know will recover fully. Uh, it would seem in the in the longer run. But uh, what do you think about mass transit? Will it ever recover from the pandemic? No, I don't think it will, not just because people are afraid to ride transit because they're afraid of communicable diseases, but because the pandemic has had so many other effects. It's going to lead to a much larger number of people working at home, at least part time. It's going to lead people to, say, move away from city centers. They're going to move to more suburban areas and smaller towns. It's going to lead to jobs moving out of downtown areas. Basically, transit is about downtown. There's a 90% correlation between transit ridership in urban areas and the number of downtown jobs. Uh, transit is Most transit systems are hub and spoke systems that lead into downtown. So as people move away from downtown, as jobs move away from downtown, transit's going to lose uh, I don't think transit's ever going to get back to 75% of what it was before the pandemic. Now, a lot of people argued before the pandemic that transit relieved congestion, that transit benefited people who weren't using it because it produced all these side benefits, congestion relief and uh, uh, energy savings and things like that. And it turns out none of those things were true. Transit is essential for congestion relief in New York City and maybe for a few downtowns like Chicago and Boston. But most cities in America, transit could disappear tomorrow and nobody would notice. And it could have disappeared in the middle of 2019. And, you know, no, no more than one or two percent of the people would notice because hardly anybody was riding it. Transit is based on a 19th or a early 20th century business model. Uh, and Biden's plan really is a plan for the 20s. It's a plan for the 1920s, not for the 2020s. Okay, thanks, Randall. And the last question here, uh, we'll go to Bob. And the, the question regards autonomous vehicles. Uh, and Bob, I mentioned your, your uh, excellent book on America's uh, highways uh, a couple years ago. Uh, does the Biden plan address autonomous vehicles? And, and what do you think the, the federal government ought to be doing on autonomous vehicles? I don't see, I do not see any funding specifically earmarked for autonomous vehicles. Uh, we have the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which has the, the portfolio to try to develop whatever policy should federal government should be. And there are definitely safety potential, big safety improvement potentials, but also there's a, a lot of concern about uh, uh, how soon the autonomous, the AI, the artificial intelligence systems will be even as good as a human driver at anticipating all different kinds of situations and reacting to them in time. Uh, and so there is a legitimate role for uh, uh, applying the same kind of safety scrutiny that's applied to conventional vehicles to autonomous vehicles. Now this vehicle safety is shared between the federal and state governments. Federal government has the you know, production uh, standards and requirements and uh, crash testing. States have licensing and and uh, uh, you know you have to have your uh, operational headlights and taillights and all these kinds of things. So I think that same division of responsibility should continue for uh, uh, the, for the future of autonomous vehicles. But we're a long way from the dream of of 
full of robo taxis that can go anywhere and uh, cars that can drive on dirt roads and snowstorms and so forth the way you can in, in a conventional car. All right. Thank you very much, Bob and uh, Randall. That's uh, all the questions we're going to take today. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, Cato posts uh, our, uh, our forums uh, a day or two later on our website. So if you want to go back and, uh, and uh, look at what we've, uh, what we've said here and uh, send it to your friends, you, you can do that. Thank you very much for tuning in.